Welcome to the PMNR Scholars Podcast. The PMNR Scholars is a group of like-minded individuals focused on collaboration, mentorship, research, and networking opportunities in physiatry. The Road to Residency series will feature on-demand sessions with leaders in the field to bridge the gap to residency. Follow along as you start your rehab journey. and I'm DM for class president at Loyola University Chicago's Christian School of Medicine and a member of the meta team here at PMNR Scholars. Today we are very excited to have a special guest to launch our lecture series for Road to Residency. Dr. Desai is a board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation as well as brain injury medicine. She specializes in neurorehabilitation. She's a resiliency director for the PMNR program at Atrium Health Carolina's Rehabilitation. Dr. Desai, welcome to the show. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Hedgen. I really appreciate it. Well, um, excited to have you. And Dr. Desai, could you please tell us where you received your medical and residency training and your personal journey to PMNR and brain me- uh, injury medicine? Sure. So um, obviously, <laughs> medical school requires undergrad. So I actually did my undergrad in Atlanta, Emory University. Um, I then pursued a master's program at Tulane University in pharmacology um, just to strengthen my application because I was having a difficult time getting into medical school. Um, And subsequently, I went to a school called Ross University School of Medicine, which is actually based in the Caribbean. So I spent about 16 months there on the island, as we call it, doing um, just my basic sciences, you know, your first two years of medical school. Um, And then I came back to the States to do all my clinical training. Um, I then subsequently thankfully matched in the field of PMNR um, and did my residency at Tufts in Boston and then I did my fellowship at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston which people know as TIER, um, the shortened acronym. My journey to PMNR um, is a lot like a lot I think a lot of people's journey kind of fell into your lap. Um, I had just come back from the island. I was reading up about clinical rotations, and I stumbled upon a Medscape article that was written by a resident who was in PM&R residency that said, you know, this combines um, interdisciplinary people, you work as a team, it's all about function and recovery, and I was like, this seems so cool, what is this? So I actually called up um, some of our family friends who are physicians in town, and I said, do you know what this field is and they were like actually we do we have a hospital in town which I didn't even know and I actually used to volunteer at the hospital next door so I got some shadowing experience in at our hometown rehab hospital and then after that I just pursued um, rotations where I could get access to obviously learning more about rehab and the interest there. Wow, you have an incredible story that brought you here and you are such a global woman, you know, being in the islands and all over the US. And as many of the M4s and PGY2 are about to kind of start on TBI service or be on TBI service for the first time, what are some clinical pearls specific to taking care of patients on a TBI service? So I think it's really important to realize that a lot of brain injury patients get really easily overstimulated. So coming into the room with like a low stim environment, um, I myself am very energetic. And so I have to like take it down a notch sometimes um, when I walk into a room. Um, So that's important, kind of knowing that patients need a low stimulation environment, you know, the lights, 
you do want to put the lights on in the morning and, and in the evening, turn the lights off, but just coming in with a calming voice, I think is really important. Um, as simple as it is, just being on time for your rotation is just really important. Um, I'm definitely a stickler for time and my residents know that. Um, the other thing is just going into rotation, knowing just some basic anatomy. So knowing the left side of the brain, um, helps, you know, affects the right side of the body, the right side of the brain affects the left side of the body. And just some simple basic anatomy will take you a long way. Um, knowing just some of the basic scales, you know, your Glasgow coma scale, your Ranchos Los Amigos scale, and I'll go through these things today so you guys know about them. What is post-traumatic amnesia? How does that correlate? So those are just really some basic things that you can know that will totally think, wow, a lot of your attendings, um, they'll be like, wow, they already know this, this is great. Um, and I also say like making sure the attending or your resident is assigning you patients to follow, whether it be two patients or three patients, and then really taking that um, and learning everything about that patient, talking with the patient, talking with their families, and really engaging in that process. Because um, this is really the time that you're going to really get to spend with families and really get to know them and, and the patient's injury. So I think those are just some quick tips. Those are incredible tips that we should all for sure have in our white coat pocket as we go through our training. And you kind of touched upon this already, but what are some specific things that let's say an M4 student who has never been on the service before can do to stand out on a way rotation, for instance? So I think again, knowing those scales, knowing your basic anatomy, um, even running through like imaging with your attendings and just learning, oh, that looks like a subdural hematoma, that looks like an epidural, um, and just knowing the differences between um, all the different types of bleeds would definitely give you a leg up. Um, and then another thing, just hustling, you know, hustling on service and just wanting to be there and engaging with your team, I think is always something I definitely take into account when I work with medical students and, and really appreciate it. And do some reading. When you get home, always do reading on your patients. It's much easier to remember things you've seen as opposed to trying to remember things you've never seen. Those are all excellent um, feedback. And I want to now invite you to kind of think back to when you were a student doctor. I know you're attending and doing incredible things now, but what, and imagine you are first stepping onto the TBI or PMI service. And what would you tell that student doctor to decide that, you know, you wish you had known then that, that, that now you know now? I probably would have told myself I needed to read more. <laughs> I definitely did not have the knowledge. I didn't know about all these scales. Um, and I think just knowing more anatomy would have really helped me and having just a good neuro exam. I remember sitting down with one of my residents um, that I was working with and having them um, help me you know, hone my neuro exam skills. That really takes you a long way, not only in medical school, but throughout the rest of your training too. Absolutely. You know, I think it's so important to neuro neuro because neuro is a close cousin of PM&R. So mm -hmm. integrate integrated into our practice is super important. So thank you so much for pointing that out for us. And now we were in a transition to the presentation portion of our time together. So Dr. Desai has prepared an incredible presentation for us to know more about the traumatic brain injury service, so one-on-ones, if you will, and more clinical wisdom and some management. So without further ado, Dr. Desai, the floor is yours. Great, thanks. Just gonna share my screen with you guys and we'll get going. So this is just a quick introduction. It's gonna be very fast. Um, there's a lot of information on these slides and I'll do my best to get through it all. Um, 
So what is really the definition of TBI rehab? There is just too many definitions, um, but there is a common theme. It's basically this alteration in consciousness or some sort of neurologic deficit resulting from biomechanical forces. That deficit can either be transient or permanent. As a result of this deficit, you can see alterations in your consciousness, your cognition, your sleep, motor issues, sensory issues, vision, hearing. Um, so there's really just such a broad definition of what TBI really is. TBI-based rehab is a specialized program similar to our spinal cord patients that really focuses on recovery and function. Just like everything in PM&R, we are a heavy team-based approach team. Um, it's your physicians, your nurses, your therapists, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. RT is your recreational therapist, your psychologists, your neuropsychologists, social workers, your nutritionists, your respiratory therapists, vocational rehab when you're working towards getting a patient back to their job, and of course, family support. It's extremely important for our patients. And then some TBI uh, rehabs have actually locked units. At Carolina's Rehab, we do have a locked unit. And what that means is that you basically have to badge in and out to get out of that unit. We do that because our moderate to severe brain injuries can be impulsive and they're an elopement risk. And so it's really just a safety feature for our patients and our families. Like anything else, you should always know the epidemiology behind the disease. Um, unfortunately, from the CDC, the most recent data is from 2017. Um, but based on that data, what we know is that falls and motor vehicle accidents are still the most common causes that contribute to hospitalizations, whether it be in young patients, 0 to 17, or even our older patients, which are greater than 75. However, our elderly population does account for the largest number of hospitalizations as well as deaths. And suicide is actually the leading cause of TBI related deaths um, in this country. Males and also females uh, or greater than females actually lead to more TBIs. Males just tend to be higher risk takers. So falls, motor vehicle accidents, suicide, as well as homicide. So just wanna reiterate that, you know, it is really important for our elderly population to really educate on fall prevention and also mental health treatment in this country is really, really key to getting some of these numbers um, down. So how do you classify TBI? So what you'll hear a lot, especially at the acute care hospitals, as well as on service is this Glasgow Coma Scale. We'll throw out numbers all the time. Um, it's the scale on the left side. It is um, based on your best motor response, your best verbal response, and eye opening. The best motor response is your best predictor of outcomes in the acute setting when you're in the trauma unit. Um, so it's really important to kind of just learn the basics of this scale. You typically will be tested on it as well as a resident. And then you want to break down brain injuries itself into mild, moderate, and severe. Mild TBI is more like your concussions. Um, so you're going to have normal imaging typically. Your loss of consciousness will be less than 30 minutes. Your post-traumatic amnesias usually last only zero to one day. And very important, your glass coma scale is typically only 13 to 15. And this is your best score within the first 24-hour period. Your moderate. You will have likely normal to abnormal um, imaging as well as with your severe. Your loss of consciousness with your moderates are anywhere from 30 minutes to 24 hours, and then your severes are greater than 24 hours. 
your PTA, which is your post-traumatic amnesia, is anywhere from greater than one day to less than seven days for your moderate, for your severe is greater than seven days. Again, the take-homes are your Glasgow Coma Scale numbers as well. So for your moderates, nine to 12, and your severe is three to eight. So myself right now, I'm hopefully a 15. Um, scales, more scales and more scales. We have so many scales in traumatic brain injury. So I'm just trying to hit the surface of these. Um, the Glasgow Coma Outcome Scale, this is something you'll hear a lot more in the acute care side if you're doing consults with your attendings or your residents. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory, but I'll go through it really quickly. One is death. Two is a vegetative state, which means it's a prolonged unconsciousness with characterizations of sleep-wake cycles. These patients are typically not aware of their environment or their self. Three and four, severe disability versus moderate disability. The main difference between the two is that a severe disability basically means you have to have someone with you 24 hours a day. Moderate disability is someone who doesn't necessarily need that 24 hour supervision, um, but they still may need some help, but they could get out and work or take the public transport to get from point A to point B. And then five is good recovery. These patients still can have some deficits, but they likely are mild or they may have completely had complete resolution of their injury itself. More scales again, the Ranches Los Amigos scale. So um, it is now a 10 point scale um, with the assistance needed added to it. So um, the first three are no response, a generalized response, and a localized response. This is typically a test question, either on um, PM&R boards or on the yearly exam that the residents take. Um, then you have level four, which is confused and agitated. Five is confused and inappropriate. So the patient is confused, but maybe making inappropriate comments or gestures. Um, and then they move out of that phase and hopefully go towards the confused and appropriate phase. Then they become, start to do things more automatically and they're still appropriate at this time. And then the last, you know, eight, nine, and 10 are all purposeful and appropriate, but the only difference is how much assistance they need. This kind of goes in hand with your PTA or your post-traumatic amnesia. This is the most common thing that we will talk about when it comes to predictors of outcome. So when you have resolution of your PTA, this means that everything or a lot of the information we're giving the patient is now being incorporated into their so-called working memory. Um, and then a severe disability is unlikely when the PTA lasts less than two months, but good recovery is unlikely when PTA lasts le greater than three months. So I know it's confusing, but this is how they, they word it in our world. Um, PTA co correlates really strongly with the length of coma. So the longer your PTA, the worse the outcomes. And how do we actually calculate or scale the PTA? So we have more forms and scales. Um, the GOAT is one of them. What I will typically do is I will print this out for my residents or my medical students and have them administer it to the patient. And you need a score of 75 or greater for two consecutive days in order to say you're out of PTA. Um, it doesn't take too long, but it does ask a series of orientation questions, why the patient's in the hospital, and then it deducts so many points for each incorrect answer. Um, and then the O-log is a similar method. It's a little bit easier, um, but there's less evidence, but we still use it because it, it's a nice quick way if you're running low on time.
All right, so primary injuries and secondary injuries. So your primary injury is that direct disruption to your brain parenchyma from the impact of the injury. It occurs usually immediately to hours after impact. Typically, these injuries are your contusions, your diffuse axonal injuries, your bleeds, your intracerebral hemorrhages, your focal vascular injuries. And what happens from a biomechanical level, which you guys would actually understand better than me, is that it depolarizes the membrane. You get this surge in extracellular potassium and then glutamate gets released. The secondary injury is then due to this you have the contusion or you have the bleed. And as a result of that, the oxygen levels may fall below this ischemic threshold. Once that happens, you get this glutamate release, sorry, not glutamate, you get increased glucose metabolism, and then that leads to anaerobic glycolysis. As a result of that, you get this ischemic reperfusion injury, which sounds exactly how it is. You get this ischemia and now the brain is trying to reperfuse this ischemic areas that causes free radicals. The free radicals then lead out all these damaged cell proteins and that then leads to necrosis and apoptosis. As a result of this, you get this energy failure and the brain swells. This could be a lecture all on its own. <laughs> so I'm gonna quickly run through some of these direct injuries that you'll see more commonly. This is an epidural hematoma. It's this perfect little biconvex appearance on CT. The, what you'll see this with is a lot of temporal bone fractures, 90% of injuries with temporal bone um, because it crosses the middle meningeal artery. 50% of patients will have this lucid interval and then they rapidly deteriorate. This you tend to see in your younger patients. Subdural hematomas, another focal injury. This occurs about 30% of the time in severe brain injuries. You will see this a lot more in elderly patients. It's due to the shearing of your bridging veins between the arachnoid and the dura itself. The subdurals tend to be larger in our elderly patients because their brains have lost brain parenchyma, and so it has more space. The blood has more space to go. You can have acute subdurals, you can have subacute, and you can have chronic. Again, imaging, very important to look at. So this white stuff, as you want to call it, is blood. And as a result of that, it is compressing this lateral ventricle here. And it's actually causing a little bit of a midline shift as well. Basics that are pretty easy to learn um, once you start looking at these things over and over again. A subarachnoid hemorrhage, another type of focal injury, typically from ruptured cerebral aneurysms or AV malformations. You also see this in really bad traumas from motor vehicle accidents. Um, and what you'll see in the first 24 hours is the blood just fills these subarachnoid cisterns and it leads out into the sylvian fissures as well. So, and then DAI or diffuse axonal injury. This you have to see on MRI. So unfortunately you can get a CT head and you won't see this. And this is because you're disrupting um, the axons because of that acceleration deceleration force, especially in motor vehicle accidents, as well as rotational forces. This is one of the most common causes of this like longer prolonged unconsciousness. So if I'm doing trauma consults with the trauma team and I see a patient that's had a brain injury and they've been unconscious for you know greater than a day or two and they're really not coming to despite being off all sedation, I will ask the trauma team to please get an MRI and look for DAI specifically. Um, there are some gradings to this. You can look them up. If you know all the different grades, your attendings will be like, wow, how did you know that? 
Um, so another little tip. Um, the locations are corpus callosum, most common, central white matter, and the brainstem. So on this picture, these are much harder to read. I would not expect anyone to know how to read these. Um, but if you're on a radiology rotation, definitely ask the radiologist if they could show you some maybe um, DAI on imaging. So at least you can take a look and see what it looks like. Assessment. So obviously, I know our medical students who rotate with us um, love being able to take the full history and physical and be able to write it all up, which I think is great. Um, so it's really important you get a good, thorough history from not only the patient, but you want to get history from the family too. You want to include a really thorough social history. What were they like prior to this injury? Were they working? Were they not working? How independent were they? What's their home look like? How many steps to enter? And what's their family support look like? Because um, the family is a large part of the recovery. You want to know how to do a really good cranial nerve exam. I'm not going to go through all of these individually, but YouTube has some great videos that you guys can look there. If you are a textbook person, Bates is a really good old physical exam book that has some really great pictures and a great way to learn. Um, you also want to do a really good full motor exam, top to bottom, um, a sensory exam, reflexes, all your reflexes. So your biceps, your brachialis, your triceps, your patella, your Achilles, and you want to always add in a Hoffman just in case for that upper motor neuron. Um, coordination, doing a finger to nose test um, if they can. And then cognition, most of our patients have cognitive impairments. So it's important to just do basic orientation questions, memory recall, have them name several things. So if I don't have them name a pen. A pen is pretty easy to name. I have them tell me that this is called the tip of a pen. Um, so you wanna show them a little more complex sometimes things than just something that's a pen. Um, if I have a watch on, I will show them the band of the watch and ask them to name what is this part? And they'll say, of what? And they'll say, well, what is, if they don't know that it's a watch, then, then you can kind of lead them to it. You also, if they can, have you draw a clock with a time. Um, and also sequence testing or serial sevens um, where you have them subtract from 100 are great, just basic tests you should all know how to do. So what are symptoms of a brain injury? So there's mild, moderate, severe. The symptoms are actually pretty similar across, across the spectrum. It's just how much or how many or how severe the symptoms may be. So typically headaches, nausea, fatigue, drowsiness, balance problems, vision issues, hearing issues, memory, concentration, mood changes, um, all of these can happen across all the injuries. Um, you may see more in your, obviously your moderate to severe, but your mild TBIs, your concussion patients can have all of these symptoms as well. So it is really important when you see concussion patients, especially in the outpatient clinic, you are actually going through a lot of these questions and symptoms. So disorders of consciousness, I think there were several questions about how do you really assess these patients. They are a very challenging set of patients. Um, and so it takes a lot of practice. A lot of times people learn more about this as a fellow in brain injury fellowship, but it's also really important um, to just start learning about this so you can advocate for your patients. So um, there's three main different states. So coma, which is just this lack of wakefulness as evidenced by lack of sleep-wake cycles on your EEGs um, and complete loss of spontaneous and stimulus-induced arousal. 
Then your vegetative state, which is also called unresponsive wakefulness syndrome in Europe. I tend to use that word a little more. Um, it's now the resumption of your sleep-wake cycles on EEG and they will open their eyes and they are um, a state of, they're awake, but they're unaware. So one of the easiest things to look at is, um, are they posturing to pain or not? Um, are they reflexively moving? Um, like involuntary, involuntary movements. Um, visually, they will startle. So you want to kind of get close to their face and maybe clap. Um, so, but and they may vocalize, but it doesn't necessarily um, not a true vocalization of of words per se. Um, disorders of conscious patients are complex. They have medical complexity, so it's really important. And their arousal really fluctuates. It's really important that you see them multiple different times in the day. So if you saw them in the morning one day, you may want to catch them again in the afternoon. And then you may want to catch them again in the evening because you may get a different exam every time. Um, and then minimally conscious is now where the patient is aware, um, but now it's very inconsistent. So they will have a visual fixation. Um, they will respond to commands, but it's inconsistent. So they may follow a command in the morning, but they may not follow command in the afternoon. And it's very unreliable kind of yes, no, um, as well as communication. So that's really the main kind of heavy hitter with the minimally conscious. They can also start tracking and minimally conscious. So if you kind of walk across the room, I usually will do that several times in different directions um, to see if I notice that they're tracking me with their eyes. This is just another quick table, kind of tells you the difference between all four. Emerged, I just wanted to show you guys that emerged just means that everything's more consistent compared to a minimally conscious state. And then how do you actually assess DOC patients? Um, so you really want to use objective measurements. So the most common thing we use is the JFK um, Coma Recovery Scale Revised. It's a 23 item that has six subscales. This is a little bit of a time consuming test. So it's really important you see how to do these first, um, typically either from your attending or a neuropsychologist or um, even your therapist are trained how to do these. So I really say spend a lot of time learning how to do this properly um, because otherwise if you don't do it properly, you may miss um, and misdiagnose a patient of yours, which we definitely don't want. We already know we misdiagnose patients with DOC a pretty heavy percentage of the time. There's another um, type of tool called the Individualized Quantitative Behavioral Assessment. That's used more so if you're looking at a specific question about a DOC patient, like their vision or their communication. Um, you can also use EMG. So if a patient is activating a muscle, you can stick the needle in the muscle and you'll hear it kind of activate. Um, functional neuroimaging is great, but it's not always realistic because most institutions don't have access to like fMRIs and things like that except for research and blood work just basic things can electrolyte abnormalities if a patient's having a seizure EEGs that are subclinical seizures that you're not seeing these things can all mask consciousness hearing loss the patient couldn't hear you well they can't answer your questions if they can't hear you um, so just some basic things and you also want to make sure you're doing it very systematically you do it system wise so that way you're not missing anything and do it the same way every time 
Medical and neurological complications, there are several, but I did just want to hit on one of the most common things we see, seizures. So in acute care, they will typically get prophylaxis with Keppra or Phenytoin, Keppra more popular now um, during that first week. And then you can also still develop these post-traumatic seizures. Immediately is usually in that first 24 hours, early is in the first week, and late is anything after the first week. Penetrating head traumas have the largest incidence of post-traumatic seizures. Makes sense if there's a trauma that's actually in your head. Um, and most PTS or most post-traumatic seizures occur in the first three months. So I always tell my families if they're leaving rehab before that time period that you're still at really high risk to have a seizure at home and what they need to do if they see a seizure at home. Typically on the unit, we carry benzos to quickly abort seizures, um, either IV or IM. Um, sodium abnormalities are very common. So SIADH and cerebral salt wasting are your two hyponatremic and diabetes insipidus is your hypernatremic. The main difference between SIADH and cerebral salt wasting is that SIADH is in a euvolemic patient and their urine osmolality is gonna be high. They're gonna have concentrated urine cerebral salt wasting, they're dehydrated. So they're gonna look a little bit dry. Diabetes insipidus is where your sodium levels are high. Um, and as a result of that, your sodium's high, your serum osmolality, so it's in your blood is high, but your urine osmolality is low. So that's an easy way. And remember, hyponatremia can also cause seizures. So you wanna always look for causes of things that are occurring. Paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity, Sounds exactly how it is, so it's paroxysmal um, and it's hyperactive. So hypertension, tachycardia, hyperthermia, spasticity or posturing. Um, the easiest thing to remember what it looks like, it's kind of like autonomic dysreflexia in spinal cord patients. So if you've seen that, very similar. Um, you do have to abort it when it happens. So the abortive medications are typically morphine and benzos. Obviously, like lorazepam, we try to obviously stay away from benzos because they're bad for our brain injuries, for their recovery, but sometimes the, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so you have to take that risk to help the patient. And then you want to make sure they're on a preventative medication moving forward to prevent these episodes from happening. These are your lipophilic beta blockers that are going to cross your blood brain barrier, try to say that 10 times fast, um, your dopamine agonist, amantadine, your bromocryptine, your gabapentin, clonidine. Clonidine can make people really sleepy and fatigued, so I really do try to stay away from that one if I can. Post-traumatic hydrocephalus, very common. However, this doesn't typically present like the wet, wobbly, wacky that we all learn in medical school. Um, it typically presents with these intermittent headaches, nausea, vomiting, mental status changes, even sometimes swallowing gets, your speech therapist may come up to you and say, their swallowing just seems really off and it's gotten worse. And you're like, well, that's weird. What's going on? Get a head CT and take a look at what's going on. Agitation, spasticity, cognition, all of these things are definitely things we look at almost every day. Heterotopic ossification, another thing that's pretty common in brain injury patients. Pain, decreased range of motion. Take a look at all the kind of main joints, your hips, your elbows, knees, shoulders, um, but the hips are most common. A triple phase bone scan is the um, like ideal method, um, but typically we'll, we'll get an x-ray first to see if we can um, tease it out that way. Neuroendocrine disorders, we already touched on this a little bit, your sodium disorders, but then also at three months and one year, you want to get all of your anterior pituitary hormones checked. 
These can cause abnormalities, which then get then lead to increased fatigue and then secondary um, issues down the road, which we want to avoid. Medications, I'm just going to quickly go through these because I think I'm running out of time here. Um, so neurostimulants, focus, arousal, cognition, memory, these are kind of things you're trying to um, target. Methylphenidate, which is Ritalin um, or Adderall are both two medications we use a lot. Dinepazil is um, something we can use for cognition and memory. Amantadine probably has the most evidence-based medicine behind it. Uh, there's tons of studies that help with arousal. So we use that a lot in our disorders of consciousness patients, but also just our regular moderate and severe brain injuries as well. Bromocryptine, amantadine's cousin, another dopamine um, agonist also can be used as well as modafinil. We don't use modafinil as much because typically insurance won't approve it unless you have an obstructive sleep apnea um, diagnosis. So um, insomnia, very common after TBI. Trazodone is used a lot. It's overall pretty safe medication, but it can prolong QTC and cause um, low blood pressure and make people a little sleepy if you give them too much. Melatonin, great over the counter but you always want to watch for interactions with melatonin. And mirtazapine, at really low doses, 7.5 milligrams, you can actually use it for sleep, um, and it doesn't affect like the appetite or the mood. So that's another kind of um, option for patients if they can't tolerate other things. Agitation, there's so many medications out there for agitation. Um, amantadine actually can be used. There are some studies that have shown that um, you want to use beta, you can use beta blockers. That's where the most evidence is um, propranolol, but you have to work your way up to higher doses of that. Atypical antipsychotics, we don't love using them, but we sometimes have to use them um, for patients who are really getting riled up and you know potentially a harm to the, themselves or someone else. And anticonvulsants actually are medications that we do use for agitation, um, things like Depakote um, or valproic acid or lamotrigine and carbamazepine. There's several other. Um, so if your patient's on, sometimes you can do a two for one so you're not adding so many medications for your patient. Um, mood, a lot of our patients have depression or anxiety um, after an injury such as this. Um, so SSRIs and SNRIs are our go-to. Escitalopram is probably the most well-tolerated antidepressant, but just like anything else, everything can have side effects. So hyponatremia, sexual side effects, seizures, so things that we have to watch out for. I use SNRIs more when I have a patient who has this neuropathic pain, the tingling, the numbness, um, sensory changes, as well as like the depression piece, trying to always do a two for one as much as you can. And then we have some other medications. We don't use them as much, but they're there. And then talking with families, how do you approach families? You really need to determine like, what is your family's desire to know the prognosis? Cause you need to meet them where they're at. Um, you need to know what the family already knows. What are their perceptions about brain injury? Don't use terminology, <laughs> use descriptions. Um, don't say, oh, the Glasgow coma outcome scale yet. Yeah, no one knows what that is. Um, you know, always relay that, you know, they may make a good recovery but they still may have some emotional issues or behavioral issues really avoid using numbers. You instead wanna use the words like likely, unlikely, those type of things. And if you do wanna use numbers, don't use hard numbers like 80%. You wanna say like out of 10 people like your loved one, 
eight of them will have a good recovery. So that way people are able to digest that information better as opposed to saying eight out of 10 or 80%. Um, and whenever possible with brain injuries, I always say foster hope um, because these are your lifelong patients a lot of times and you wanna develop a great relationship with them. If you guys have any more questions, you can just reach out to me on Twitter, that's my handle, or you can even email me at work. Um, I am available in both directions and these are my references and that's about it. Well, that was a fantastic presentation. Thank you so much, Dr. Desai. I hope that you're all TBI experts now ready to conquer the floor. And as we are wrapping up here, are there any last minute tips and tricks for those who are starting their TBI rotation that have never seen it before? I would say just go in with an open mind. You know, uh, when I first was a medical student, I, don't, I didn't go to the brain injury unit. So I didn't learn brain injury till I hit the floor as a resident. And you know, there's just so much learning that you can do. Um, so just go in with an open mind and an open heart and you know, just learn as much as you can. That's all I can really ask for. That's, that's so true. I think it is such a lifelong journey of learning that we are the field that we are in. And, and also as we close off, I think it's really important to kind of think back to the human side of medicine. And you have a very interesting title because you have a, you are the, the, the resiliency director. So could you kind of tell us what that is about or any stories that you have that kind of fosters resilience in the job that you do? Um, I think just being in medical school fosters resilience. I mean, it is a very tough road. Um, I myself, you know, I went to a not, I went a non routine, I guess, route. I went to medical school in the Caribbean and obviously had its own challenges living away from family and friends and then matching into um, the field that I wanted to be into. So I think um, resiliency is just, you know, part of being the resiliency director. Um, you know, we have a dedicated curriculum at Carolina's Rehab for that. But I think uh, things that foster resiliency are just figuring out what works for you. Um, you know, how do you de-stress when you come home from, you know, a busy day at clinicals or even a busy day in med school um, and finding where that balance is for you. I personally, I like going for walks and I like walking around my neighborhood and I like going on my bike. Um, those are the things that make me happy. So those are the things I lean towards when I'm stressed out or having a rough day. Well, thank you so much for all your words of wisdom. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Desai. And to everybody who submitted their thoughtful questions, we appreciate you. And for those who are just listening, we will uh, put Dr. Desai's presentation in the show notes. And you have just listened to an episode of the PMNR Scholars Podcast Road to Residency Series. Until next time. <laughs>